Love this podcast? Support this show through the supporter feature from Acast. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hello and welcome to the Partly Political Broadcast, the comedy politics podcast that also displays its real intentions with three follow-up letters, but in this case it's just F, F and S. This is episode 161, I'm Tiernan Duyeb, and this week as the Prime Minister and walking pile-up Boris Johnson previously said he'd sooner be dead in a ditch than delay Brexit, but has now written to the EU asking for an extension and is definitely still alive, my question is, how are we ever meant to restore trust in politicians again? This was just one of many broken promises this weekend, as Super Saturday very much wasn't. The name given to Parliament's first Saturday sitting since 1982 was only really super in the way that, say, super noodles are, in that you really wish it hadn't come to this, but now that you're supping on the gloopy egg worms of sadness, you may as well pretend it's not that bad. But it was that bad, well, for the government anyway, as Johnson tried to persuade MPs to vote on a Brexit deal that only months before he'd said no Prime Minister could agree to. But then I guess he really is no Prime Minister. His argument consisted of apologising for taking up people's Saturdays as it's a time when families want to be together, but I guess it must have been a relief for him not to have to pick which one to spend it with. He then went on to complain that he wasn't getting to watch football before talking about the UK's relationship with the EU being half-hearted, but ignoring that he spent years writing columns making up stories about them banning prawn cocktail crisps or bananas that weren't bendy enough. It's quite something to base the entire future of the country on forgetting you were pivotal in making people believe true British values were based on needing a fruit that would curve right round your chin in order to make a decent enough comedy phone prop. The main gist though was that people are bored so we just need to get on with Brexit because nothing makes a solid plan like racing through it out of Dolden. I mean, it's not even a great boredom tactic to put something in place that will have years and years of even more boring trade talks and laws once it's done. Really bored people give up on doing whatever it is that's numbing their brain in the first place and go and do something else. If they want to respect how bored people are of Brexit, what the government should be doing is cancelling the whole thing and using a fraction of the budget to make some funny Instagram filters that give everyone a Michael Fabricant hairdo or the weird cold empty eyes of Esther McVeigh and they'd become more popular within seconds. It didn't help that the government had mainly just told Parliament that the 293-page document that they didn't have time to read was definitely great and what people wanted. I mean, why wouldn't you trust a man who lied to the Queen that that was definitely the case and in no way was it some sort of short novel claiming that Johnson is king and only he may sire future Britons? 
Actually, the New Deal is only 5% different to the deal that former Prime Minister and ancient ceramic figurine depicting pointlessness, Theresa May, failed to get past Parliament three times. With part of that 5% left being the removal of the Irish backstop in place of a border in the sea. Which is stupid, as I'm not sure how you train fish to check passports, though I would like to see International Trade Secretary and bin bag in the wind Liz Truss have to swim to meetings. Foreign Secretary and having tights over my head is my default face, Dominic Raab, said that Northern Ireland get an amazing deal because they get to retain access to the EU single market and customs union, as if he's completely unaware of what Brexit means and why we're doing it and anything that happened more than five minutes ago. I've got a sneaking suspicion that Raab spends each and every day with popcorn by hot butter on loop in his brain and it's only when people interrupt him that he's so surprised he says the first things that fall out of his mouth. Another change from Theresa May's deal to Boris's is the removal of protection of workers' rights. Because hey, who'll need those post-Brexit when there won't be any jobs to do anyway? No one was happy with it, with even Brexit party leader and flotsam orgy, Nigel Farage, who said that it's just not Brexit. Which of course he'd say, as any Brexit that he doesn't personally gurn over the line with his sack face is not going to be a Brexit according to him. He's a man who I bet definitely still feigns surprise that it isn't butter if offered it. More importantly for Johnson, the DUP are unhappy with it, saying there are too many remaining gaps in the deal. And I mean, if anyone's against filling in gaps willy-nilly, it's them. But it didn't matter, as thanks to an amendment by costume from an Amdram performance of Wind in the Willows, Oliver Letwin, MPs chose to ensure that deal legislation had to be passed before the bill was. That pulled a political stool from under Johnson just as he thought he could sit down, and now he's very much on the floor, bum first, having to ask the EU for a hand up so he doesn't stay beached like a stupid boneless whale carcass. What that means in short form is that it's very likely that the UK won't be leaving the EU on October the 31st. I mean, it's not completely unlikely, but it's kind of likely. And yes, that is a sigh of relief that you can hear from all those creepy ghouls who are so happy that Halloween may well be the scariest thing happening on that day again. However, that noise could also be a groan of despair from all the creepy ghouls in the Conservatives who can't believe that every step of their way is thwarted by some meddling Whigs and a Labour SNP and the other parties who don't really work for that joke as well. Conservative MP and what if Sven-Goran Eriksson made a pact with the devil, Peter Bone, complained that the whole day had been a waste of time and it had ruined his birthday, because yes, he'd just turned seven years old. Enraged bowel bun, Ian Duncan-Smith said that even people who voted Remain are saying just get it done, which is interesting as if he just popped his head outside Parliament, he'd have seen hundreds of thousands of protesters definitely not saying that. It's likely that maybe he just misheard lots of people shouting, you can't trust that git, he's dumb at him. Maybe he should have a work capability assessment. IDS said people would be referring to MPs as these bastards, but to be honest, I'm not sure why they'd tone down their language when talking about him. The government threw the biggest hissy fit though and they withdrew their vote on their own deal, meaning that the Ben Act kicked in and Boris had to write a letter to the EU asking for an extension, even though he said he didn't because he actually sent a photocopy and didn't sign it, which if anything probably makes it more valuable. I mean, if they really need one, the EU could surely just copy one of his signatures from one of the blank checks he probably gave Jennifer R. Curie. Yes, this was the big law-dodging master plan from the Prime Minister and his special advisor and bleached angry gingerbread man Dominic Cummings, that all they had to do to avoid an EU extension was not sign the letter that asked for an extension. But the EU, much like every parcel force transaction I've ever had, didn't need an ink squiggle to consider it a successful delivery. Apparently, there was also a note from the UK's representative to the EU saying that the government were only sending it they had to, and another letter that was signed saying that they don't want an extension after all. I'm almost surprised Johnson then didn't have another entirely different backup letter saved for in case the UK had voted to remain back in 2016. 
So either Boris lied and didn't send a letter after all, which he did though, or more likely he lied about saying that he wouldn't send one and did, which he did. So we have to assert right now whether we have a Prime Minister who's actually a Nordic trickster god and we have to hope that his brother makes more effort to defeat him using a large hammer. Or is he just an awful chronic arsehole? Considering that sickly latex mask Joe Johnson voted against the let-win agreement instead of trying to shoot lightning from his eyes, chances are that it's definitely the latter. It's also worth mentioning that shower curtain wrapped around a scared branch, Rory Stewart, also voted against the Letwin Amendment because he's obviously never been to London before and thinks his mayoral election chances will be increased by swanning around Brixton, telling everyone to get it done. You'd be almost right to think that the government's request for a meaningful vote this week was rejected because everything they do is so endlessly meaningless. Human Angry Welcome Matt and Speaker of the House John Burko rejected it because it was essentially the same vote on the deal that MPs had a chance to do on Saturday, but didn't because the front bench were too busy crying and Peter Bone didn't get to have jelly and ice cream. President of the European Commission and What If Morgan Wise had a child together, Jean-Claude Juncker, said there'd be no Brexit extension because, holy shit, he'd now have to deal with Johnson for even more weeks than he'd thought. I mean, that's the side that we don't think through. How on earth will we persuade Europe to give us more time when they know that it means either they'll have to waste even more of their lives talking to Johnson, Raab, or racking their brains as to who on earth Brexit secretary and faint memory of an arse imprint in a cushion Stephen Barclay is? No one deserves that. No one. But Juncker doesn't actually get a say in the matter and it looks like the EU might give an extension depending on how the next week goes and whether Parliament vote for Boris's deal or a second referendum which is looking likely because hey, referendums always fix things, right? Right? Guys? Hey? Or they could just make the Prime Minister keep sending the EU photocopied letters with crude drawings of spunky cocks on it until they deservedly kick us out. I'm starting to wonder if actually Boris Johnson was telling the truth for once and maybe he just meant politically dead in a metaphorical ditch, uh, in which case that would be totally on the ball. Although based on his letter solutions that might be a little bit too creative for him. In other news, the Scottish High Court has rejected the government's requests to dismiss a legal effort to make sure the Prime Minister sticks to his obligations under the Benn Act. This does mean that if any of the letters derail the letter that sort of wasn't a letter, then Johnson could find himself in Scottish prison pretty soon, which is fairly awkward as based on his new Brexit deal, I'm still not sure he thinks the country exists. Hopefully, while he's there, Scotland can have a very quick independence referendum and then very, very quickly erect a border and then they can just keep him. By the time you hear this, abortion will be legal in Northern Ireland, despite politicians trying to make a last-minute attempt to recall the Assembly in order to deflect it, but they failed due to the Assembly needing an elected Speaker with cross-party backing, which they couldn't manage, and the SDLP and DUP both walked out. Yes, the two parties who want abortion to stay illegal tried last-minute prevention methods to stop them having to live with something that they didn't want but are now forced to keep, before then leaving prematurely. During Super Saturday, the Serious Fraud Office closed the case investigating the rigging of LIBOR, the bank rates fraud case that contains both elements of its name. Evidence had arisen showing that the Bank of England had been implicated in what's known as lowballing, which is not just a particular way to sit in your pants close to the floor, but a fraudulent way of getting to borrow more cash. Several traders and brokers have been prosecuted over the scandal during the last four years, but it does seem odd to just drop the whole thing now. I mean, it's almost like someone has willingly lowered the interest in it. Hmm. And lastly, UKIP have suspended their leader and man who looks like he actually enjoys work dues, Richard Brain, after he and three other members have been accused of stealing data. Which is a shock to me, mainly because I didn't realise UKIP members could use a computer. Or wait, is it possible to nick info from several thousand handwritten letters? And the government's porn blocker plan has been scrapped after advice that it just wouldn't work. Well, that's clear, because if it had, it'd have stopped everyone seeing how fucked it was.
Ah, hey, hey, hey. Um, what a week of things. My Saturday, I don't know how your Saturday was, my Saturday was spent watching Parliament while simultaneously playing Bare Necessities to my daughter on repeat about 600 times. All I can say is that even Baloo sounded quite stressed by the end of it. And after a little while, I began to think that his thoughts on eating fancy ants were merely just no-deal survival tips. Very odd. Odd. And what is also odd, I just feel that I have to bring this up this week, it's really odd how many MPs that have done some pretty terrible things are now seen as totally cool because they're either not as terrible as the current government or they're sort of anti-Brexit or whatever. I mean, it's like it's incredible that Ken Clark is now a hero, even though just a few years ago he wanted to put people on trial in secret courts, which is truly sinister and a plot from 24. Or Oliver Letwin, who was pro-poll tax and wanted Thatcher to use it in Scotland first as a trial, and then he made tons of racist comments about the Broadwater farm riots. But then recently he's delayed Brexit a bit more and pissed off Bojo, and suddenly it's like, yeah, Ollie Letters, you mad eyebrowed ledge. Uh, he recently plugged our kids' uh, politics show, How Does This Politics Thing Work Then, in his local paper uh, this week for when we are at Dorchester Arts on November the 2nd. Please come. And I was really chuffed, and then I had to go, ah, shit, you've openly written about privatising the NHS. Uh, it says so much about Brexit that you can just entirely redefine who you are as a political figure just by whether you remain or leave, regardless of what you did before. I honestly think that if Idi Amin rose from the dead, stood in Parliament Square and said, actually, Boris, the polls no longer show a majority for leave, he'd gain several thousand Twitter followers in like an instant. Um, I was also reminded this week, uh, I've mentioned this on the podcast before, but I was, I was watching people shout abuse at star of Funny Bones, Jacob Rees-Mogg and his son, and at many other politicians as they left Parliament, but lots of people focused on Rees-Mogg because his kid was there and they thought that was unfair, which I, I do sort of agree. Um... And I've mentioned this before, but it was some years ago, uh, my wife was doing a literary event for the Good Immigrant book that she contributed to, and the excellent Nika Shukla and Rennie Edo Lodge were there too, and I tagged along, like a total groupie. And um, we were sitting in the backstage room, and who walks in but old dog's dinner for a face, Michael Gove. Um, we all wanted to say something, but... Uh we all wanted to say something, but his son was there and we felt really bad. So instead, we just decided to start making retching noises and just going... Um, all I'm saying is, uh, that was quite considerate to his kids, because it's just people retching, isn't it? And at the same time, we definitely made enough of an impact on Gove to change his shitty, shitty attitude. Oh... Oh well, there you go. Anyway, here I am, there you are, another week where this show will become history as you listen to it, but I'm grateful that you keep coming back anyway like total champs. I've got no idea if any of you reviewed the show last week, because my iTunes has become Apple Podcasts and doesn't like to update properly. It's genuinely amazing that Apple's user experience is just to make things so shit and unusable that you become kind of trapped with their products, because you've got no idea how to get your data off them without smashing them into another computer and shouting, run, run while you can at it. Anyway... Thanks if you did uh, review the show, and please do review the show if you haven't. And cheers to Rob for the Kofi donations too. And if any of you fancy chucking me a coffee, uh, don't, as that's dangerous and it'll really burn. So please pop a few quid at ko-fi.com forward slash parpolbro or patreon.com forward slash parpolbro instead, and I'll use it to buy coffee with. Um, I've recently been trying to buy some fancy coffee beans for excellent coffee times, and I keep getting ones that say things like hints of strawberry or uh, wafts of marmite or smells of rotar or something like that. And then I drink it and I go, ah, it just tastes like coffee. Am I a Philistine or is it all bullshit? I mean, how do you make coffee? Coffee tastes like strawberry without just putting a strawberry in it and then ruining it because it's not coffee anymore, it's strawberry. I mean, it could be that I only drink it when my senses are so tired uh, that all the expert taste is completely wasted on me and I should be supping Bovril at 6am instead. Oh well. Anyway, uh, please do that. Uh, please donate to the show via the Kofi or Patreon. Please review the show. Uh, please keep sending nice tweets about the show. Blah, 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 blah. 
Uh, the only admin this week is that the next nest of podcast Future Curious that I host is now out and it's all about robot swarms. Yes, really, robot swarms like proper tiny insect bees. I've realised I speak loads slower on. Uh, I've realised I speak loads slower on that show. So if you fancy a listen, pop it in 1.5 speed for Parpol Bro levels. Or if you slow this one down, uh, that one will be perfect for you. Or maybe just play both in reverse and then use it for seances. Oh, and if any of you are on the Twitters, you might see that Frankie Boyle tweeted that I'm supporting him again in December. There's about eight dates in London, and details for all of those will be up soon. But keep your eyes and ears peeled, like a weird eye and ear orange, um, for ticket news. Right, on this week's show, I interviewed the excellent Dr. Victoria Stiles, who explains all about the fascist elements of current politics. Spoiler, there's loads, just with much less sexy boots than in the 30s. Uh, There's also a sort of speed Brexit fallout explainer if you need to know what's going on. I mean, it won't help, but the fact that I'm equally baffled might just make you feel less alone. And that's what it's all about, really, isn't it? If all else fails, we'll just walk around together making vomiting noises outside Parliament. Godwin's Law is both the name of my favourite US courtroom drama and also the internet rule that the longer an online conversation goes on, the higher the probability that someone or something will get compared to Hitler and the Nazis, causing the discussion to end. Weirdly, though, while Hitler gets shouted over the internet more than by former London mayor and current dungeon master Ken Livingstone on an afternoon stroll through, well, anywhere he goes, acknowledgement of fascist elements becoming apparent in current politics is called out an awful lot less. There's the ardent nationalism, the anti-immigration sentiment and anti-immigration camps, a whole heap of racist language and a current special advisor to the Prime Minister who I'm certain is high and has a relative who owns a castle. Okay, maybe not the last one, but what I mean is that it doesn't take Boris Johnson to suddenly put boots on and do a funny walk for what's happening to be recognised as fascism, even though it'd probably still just be classed as him mucking about showing solidarity to Desmond Swain or simply trying to reach out to appease Brexit Party voters. But me proving Godwin's law right aside in my own little monologue, what I mean is, concerningly, fascism's rise, while hugely obvious in places, is also equally frighteningly subtle in others. Which is where history comes in, as there's nothing like looking to the past, not just to check which old photos Jacob Rees-Mogg appears in, like in The Shining, but also to help spot the similarities between fascism and the Nazis in the 30s and 40s, and the now. And also to check the differences and how calling someone Hitler online might actually help. Sort of. Ish. Kind of. This week I spoke to the brilliant Dr. Victoria Stiles, who's a historian of fascism, imperialism and Anglo-Germanic relations. She explained to me all about why fascist elements are very clear in today's society and politics, some realities about how the Nazis actually worked and in some cases didn't, and most importantly, why this podcast is basically the audio version of Captain America punching Hitler in the chops. Sort of. Kind of. Ish. Long-time listeners might remember that a couple of previous guests have spoken on similar-ish topics. However, firstly, I think it's a very important topic to keep returning to. But also, as you'll find, Vicky sheds light on really, really key areas that are often ignored in terms of how dangerous they are and could be. Let's face it, until we definitely call someone Hitler, this conversation can't end. No, Ken, that wasn't a hint. Please stop. Here's Vicky. Frighteningly regularly, we're being told that what we're seeing across Western politics right now is a rise of fascism. Um, and we've had uh, I've had a couple of people on the show uh, before discussing the rise of fascism. But obviously, it's a continuing issue. Um, is this true? Are we seeing a rise or is it just sort of various elements of it that might precede a rise or are parts of fascism? I definitely think that we are seeing a rise in what I would call enough elements of fascism that we should be very concerned um, so I've been studying fascism now for, um, well, best part of two decades, I guess. 
Um, and I feel like my samples have sort of escaped out of the lab and are now running rampant across the world. It's very much, a, a, you know, the dinosaurs are out of the enclosure situation, the way I see it. Um, I think one of the problems with trying to decide how much fascism is around at the minute is we we're very it's very difficult for us to really understand that as a coherent category so it's not like we can compare what's happening now to say the rise of fascism in Italy or the rise of the Nazi party and say okay well there's all these points of comparison and we're hitting about you know 72% fascism at this point and that's the tipping point where we should be worried and I think trying to compare what's happening now directly to fascist regimes um, that have existed in the past is it's getting us bogged down in a lot of discussion, which is it's getting us away from thinking about what's really important at the moment. And that is what are the policies that are being proposed by different groups? What are the the stereotypes that are being developed, these negative stereotypes about, about different groups of people, and what is the damage that that might do. And yes, we can, it can be very useful to say, hey, look, this policy that's being proposed now is very similar to a policy that went very, very wrong in the past. But trying to sort of stick that label of fascism on it as a sort of binary thing, like, is this fascist or isn't it? Should we be worried or shouldn't we? It, it's just not a very useful way of looking at it. And I appreciate that that's a weird thing for me to say, considering fascism is pretty much all I talk about ever. But we do need to be quite careful about how we use that term and make sure that we are explaining what we mean by that. Sure. Yeah, I, I suppose it's, I, I mean, I, I very much uh, enjoy the notion of Godwin's law and that everything ends up with someone being called Hitler um, or a Nazi <laughs> on the Internet. Um, and I did have someone once say to me that the, the difference between now and, and then is that the Nazis were actually quite well organised, um, which <laughs> is a, quite a difference between them and, say, uh, various uh, politicians that we have now. Um, but what are some of the elements then that you can see now that make you concerned about the you know, fascism returning? I mean, there's so many of them that I could go on about. Um, I think the really big one that we're seeing at the moment is this idea that some people within a country deserve the full rights of citizenship, the full protection of the law, and that they have a right to live in that country, and that certain other groups of people should have a, a lesser status, that they should have slightly less protection, fewer rights, and one thing that we see with fascist regimes, one way that they do so much damage that they you know, end up killing so many people, is that you have that combination of the government essentially saying, we will protect these people less. So, you know, certain people, if they, if they report a crime, we will get the immigration services involved. Um, if if they complain about something, then they might face repercussions. They, people might question their right to actually be in the country. So you have on the one hand, they have less access to justice, to the protection of the justice system and, the, and of the government. And then on the other hand, you have the government supporting messages that these people are undesirable in the country for some reason. So you have that dual thing of the negative stereotypes and a withdrawal of protection 
And these things can happen in in very, very small ways. It Because you have this sort of um, mutual amplification of both sides, very, very small changes in the government's protection of, of certain people and in the you know, slightly more negative messages, those can combine and it can have a very strong effect very, very quickly. So that that's one thing that, that scares me at the moment is is just this idea that we, we've sort of let go of the idea that there's there's universal human rights that should protect everybody. And that that terrifies me. Yeah, it, it's very terrifying. And I think that there's there's definitely ways in which we're seeing it quite obviously, such as, say, in, in, in detention centres that Trump has, or, or concentration camps, actually, that Trump has set up in America. And then, you know, over here, we've got detention centres such as Yarl's Wood, which are very much hidden away but they're definitely there along with all the um kind of othering language used against immigrants and uh, you know swarms of migrants all that that kind of horrific uh, language is it i mean it, is it also along similar lines obviously i know it's not uh, um, under a kind of racist guise but we've seen boris johnson for example call uh extinction rebellion uncooperative crusties and now everyone that's protesting is getting arrested is that is that a fascist tactic it is definitely something that you would see under Fascist regimes, I think any authoritarian regime will want to clamp down on protests, whether that's through, well, I mean, it's, it's usually through a combination of legal measures, so restricting where people can protest, but also trying to get an establishment message out there that, you know, you shouldn't listen to these people, that this is an illegitimate protest, that they're going about it in the wrong way. Um so it's it's not it's not a uniquely fascist thing but it's definitely a very it's a worrying thing and it's it's quite anti-democratic really i think to to try to stamp out those certain voices um really by attacking the character of the people who are who are protesting Right. So to, to, for something to be distinctively, I, I suppose my, my question would be, because uh, I think there's a lot of general confusion, that the difference between being fascistic and being authoritarian, uh, while there are lots of elements that combine, <laughs> what is it that would make something, say, fascist, as opposed to being, which is also terrifying, authoritarian? Oh, that is a very tricky question. Um, I guess, OK, so authoritarianism is more about the the structures of government and about um, sort of processes of control and censorship. Um, and it, it's sort of independent of ideology. So you can have, you know, right wing authoritarianism and left wing authoritarianism. It's it's about the processes um, is the way that I would explain it anyway. I'm sure there's loads of people out there who would disagree with me. Um, whereas fascism is an explicitly right-wing ideology i'm sure there's a lot of people who disagree with me on that as well but they're wrong so there we are um fascism is it, it is right-wing it's about extreme nationalism it's there's always an element of white supremacy in there or a particular kind of racial supremacy in there um there's very strong ideas about the role of the family, sort of traditional, these traditional family values, which always equate to the man being the head of the household and, you know, women having a role as as mother and, and homemaker and, you know, not necessarily having as many political rights. So there's a, 
the fascism is more about the the ideas and the ideology and then authoritarianism is more about the the methods used to to maintain control right right okay yeah that makes so that makes sense so it's it's a very much a, a authoritarianism is more about kind of grabbing power and and fascism is an, is an ideology and pushing forward a kind of uh, as you say very nationalist ideology um and so in terms of the obviously there are there are lots of very racist elements um of control that are happening now um and very nationalist elements in terms of migration and control um how key were elements like fake news and censorship um in terms of like the nazis rise to power and can you see elements of that now you know happening in a uh, hang on, let me think of a way to say that um can you see the rise of fake news and kind of gaslighting of opinions now as as echoing fascism? Absolutely. Yes. Um, so. One thing that the that the Nazis did, they pumped a lot of energy into was really trying to control the narrative around how they rose to power, why they were necessary, why their policies are necessary, and sort of um, the whole of Germany's history, really. So how Germany got to be in the position that it was after the First World War, what, you know, what led them there, what the dangerous elements were within society that had undermined Germany, and then what the solutions to that should be. So um, I wouldn't want to claim that Goebbels, for example, was some sort of genius mastermind um but they did put a lot of resources into pushing out their particular narrative and trying to restrict any other narratives that were there not necessarily about restricting the information so we have this idea that um that fascism relies on ignorance and that all sorts of bigotry and prejudice really come from ignorance and a, a lack of exposure to outside ideas and in all the research that I've done, I, I've not seen that playing out at all. I think it's more about controlling how information gets framed, how people are thinking about new information, and it's really pushing a fundamentally flawed worldview so that any other information people are exposed to, they're automatically suspicious of it. They're automatically interpreting it in this, in this sort of flawed way. Um, and that's definitely what's happening at the moment so we we are we are receiving messages from from all sorts of different groups from politicians and things that that there are people that we shouldn't be listening to that there are people who are for example playing the race card this idea that that's a card that can just be played that it's all a, a sort of false strategy to to get something that somebody doesn't deserve we've been told that for for decades now um to try and undermine any legitimate complaints that that people are making um so that, that's definitely one example and a lot of the the terminology that that activists use it very very quickly gets picked up in in the media by by more hostile groups and you know sort of parodied and delegitimized um so anybody talking about social justice at the minute that's become something that has you labelled as a bit of a crank or just trying to talk about human rights, that's become, the very meaning of that term has become twisted. Um, and it's 
Right, like virtue signalling as well. That's yes. another one, isn't it? Yeah, exactly. Like what's wrong with signalling the fact that you think something is yeah. more virtuous than something else? But it's it's incredibly difficult to fight against and it's in, it's an incredibly powerful technique to just remove the vocabulary from people. Like the second you come up with a useful term to describe something, it, it gets taken away from you again and it, and it gets twisted and it's... It doesn't look like silencing. It doesn't look like you're being censored, but you just cannot break into that dominant narrative. You you just don't have a way of accessing the discussion anymore um, because so many people have been told that, well, even if they can hear your voice, they, they shouldn't be listening to you. Right, and that's where the whole mistrust in the media comes from, but then also the media telling us to that certain people are traitors or... Uh, all that sort of like so yeah it's an interesting thing where we've both got people not trusting the media but seem to be swayed by the right-wing media in, in terms of its opinions um and the, the nazis had quite a control over newspapers and, and the press in their time didn't they yes um not the kind of i think you mentioned before about the nazis being way more organized um they weren't as organized as you might think when you actually start digging into what their processes were. Um, so a lot of my, well, my PhD research was looking at methods of censorship in the book trade. So we have this idea that they, you know, a lot of books ended up on ban lists and a lot of books were burnt. It's like, okay, yeah, that, that happened. But that was more a way of instilling fear in people, you know, sort of look what we can do if you step out of line. Whereas if you just think about like the the size of Germany and how many people were living there and how many books people tend to have and how many bookshops there are, you they just didn't have the resources to directly control everything was hap- that was happening. It's it's not like they were keeping tabs on every single book that was being sold or even published anywhere. Um, so they relied a lot on self censorship, on instilling fear in people, on making it very clear what their accepted approved narrative was and then you've got people at every stage of the process at every level of society constantly watching out for things that might get them into trouble so you've got a sort of grassroots like vigilante approach to censorship really and then when you look at the the messages that those sort of top down messages that are coming down from from Hitler and Goebbels and others about what they want to stamp out, they're they're quite contradictory sometimes. There's there's various instances of people lower down the chain saying, "Hey, look, this book goes completely against Nazi ideas and it should be banned." And then you, it goes all the way up the chain, and you'll get Hitler going, "Oh yeah, but I actually really like that book, so leave it alone." And it just. <laughs> It, it looks like control. It looks like they were very, very organized. And we want to believe that they were, you know, sort of superhuman in some ways in the way that they managed to do so much damage so quickly. But they were also just, they were people. They were a bit of a shambles in a lot of regards. And that, I find that a lot more scary because we are also just people and we're a bit of a shambles. And like, you don't have to be super organized and have complete control for things to to run away. 
How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volur XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. And we'll be back with Vicky in a minute. But first... Brexit I won't demean your intelligence by assuming you currently don't really have a clue what's going on with Brexit or in Parliament in general, but let's face it, if you do, you're miles above most politicians themselves or political experts, as what happens next is more blurry than a Vaseline-smeared Damon Albarn album moving really quickly. So this bit is more of an everything fallout on this podcast, and there's a mega chance absolutely all of this will have changed by later this week, but four of you on the Facebook, and probably the same four just on Twitter, said it would be useful anyway. So look, that's what happens when you don't all go out and vote. I reckon what would be most useful is a quick what's what of what is what and what might even be if what changes. And yes, now I really want some what's-its. Mm, what's-its. So strap in, not because it'll be fast, but more because health and safety is important. And here's some speedy answers for potentially wrong questions. What did the Letwin Amendment mean? Not to be confused with the Let Loose Amendment, which would have made the bill crazy for EU. No, I'm not sorry. Deal with it. The Letwin Amendment basically said that votes on Johnson's supposedly Great New Deal couldn't happen until the legislation, aka the Withdrawal Agreement Bill, or WAB, was passed by Parliament first. This is important, because if Boris had got his deal passed, but then the legislation wasn't passed in time for October 31st, then we'd still have crashed out with no deal because his deal wasn't all finished. Which, I mean, was so likely, right? I mean, the man only managed journalistic deadlines by making up half the content of them. We'd probably have found that half the legal talk, if it had got through, was all about policies on same-size Euro coffins, which is something he once really wrote about. Really. Hence why he was adamant to avoid them and die in a ditch. Probably. The whole bad deal is better than a no deal could have meant voting for a bad deal, still getting a no deal and generally feeling like not only have things ended up all Captain Shitty, but we also let Boris win at something on the way, so that would be the worst. 
So, this was an insurance policy, really, and Letwinner said that he'll still vote on Boris's deal when it gets there, so this was kind of just a no-deal avoider, and really, he was only a good guy for all of about five minutes. The government could have had their vote on a deal after the amendment got voted through, but then they'd have very likely lost it, as MPs would have realised they now had more time to scrutinise it, and realise it is 95% everything they hated about May's bill, but 5% even more shit. What was even worse about Boris's deal than I mentioned last week? Well, as well as last week, where I said it would make everyone £2,500 worse off according to the government's own figures, they hadn't actually released a proper economic assessment by then. As explained by 98% Stupid Air and Brexit Secretary Stephen Barclay, he said the deal needed to go through to end the uncertainties before saying the uncertainties of the deal meant they couldn't assess its economic impact. Brilliant work, Steve-o. It'd be great to end his idiocy, but he's so stupid it would be impossible to work out what he'd grasp. There also used to be a bit in the withdrawal agreement about having the same workers' rights as the EU, but that bit's now been moved to the political declaration part of it, which isn't legally binding, and could just make us all work US hours where everyone never has any time off, leading them to all go a bit bonkers and do awful things like enjoy shows such as the Kardashians. Ugh. Oh, and last week I was talking about Boris's double border plan, but now the idea would be for the border to be in the sea, which is the idea that was discussed back in 2016, and no one liked it then, so yes, we're now in shit plans reboots, but with a worse cast who barely respect the original. Plus, there's all sorts of extra charges now for Northern Ireland if they want to trade to Great Britain or Great Britain trade to Northern Ireland, because Northern Ireland is sort of going to be in its own weird customs union. For example, firms are going to face fees of at least €55 Euros or £47 pounds at any border inspection posts when sending products of animal origin from Britain to Northern Ireland. Island. So there goes any chances for my monkey business. What about the meaningful vote? Well, Speaker Burko deemed it to be the same vote as they'd had on Saturday, which they chose not to have because of the Letwin agreement, but then they couldn't just sort of bring it all back again. This is again the old Theresa May tactic of being like a dog whose owner has died, but you know, they just keep nudging them in case they eventually will still get fed. The vote also wouldn't have been that meaningful as the legislation wouldn't have been passed, so I don't think it really would have counted. So now there's three days, three days this week, to take in all of the withdrawal agreement bill, all hundreds and hundreds of pages of it, and discuss it, which really isn't all that long to take it all in and properly scrutinise it. And the Wild Animals and Circuses Act of 2019 actually had more time given to it in Parliament, which, I mean, do you even need me here? I mean, that gag writes itself, doesn't it? I'll let, I'll let you do it. Be creative. Think about it. Yeah, yeah, easy, isn't it? Easy. And the vote on the Queen's speech? Well, that's delayed for now. I mean, if the Queen's speech gets rejected, that usually results in a vote of no confidence in the government. But I mean, should have had about 12 of those by now. And we're very likely to get one of those probably soon or an election if a referendum isn't voted for first. And then so who needs to sit around and pretend the government might ever suddenly enforce voter ID when they can't even work out how many faces their own leader has? Would voting on the deal just get it done? No, of course not. There'd be months and months and months of trading negotiations with the EU uh, who are probably not going to make it particularly easy. Not least because our government has spent ages telling them that actually it's their fault that everything's gone wrong and threatening not to pay them the money that we legally owe and agreed to. Can't think why they'd be so difficult. Weird. They're also getting a new EU trade commissioner, an Irish politician called Phil Hogan, who's entirely made of circles. And he's previously referred to Johnson as an unelected prime minister who's gambling with peace. Chances are, by the end of it, it's going to cost like £40 for a croissant minimum, and I bet they'll only let us sell them cars if we let Spain return all of our train robbers. Didn't Juncker say no extensions? Yes, but it's not up to him. It's up to all the member states, but they're already prepared to ratify Johnson's deal if it goes through, give us to give a short extension if one is needed or give a longer extension if a second referendum is voted for. Basically, they worked all that out in the morning while our government was still assuming that if they bring the same bill back but on a Monday, maybe no one will know it. Should we put a moustache on it, change the fun? It will totally fool them. No, no it won't. No, it won't.
Is Emmanuel Macron being a dick? Yeah, the French president explicitly said there'd be no extension and now he's getting all angry about it. And he's just been flexing his child doing PE muscles by blocking North Macedonia's progress into the EU, even though they just solved a decades-old dispute with Greece, which caused loads of political issues for both countries. And then after all that effort uh, that they made, old head boy just went not and blocked it like a twat. So I think he's fannying about with his year seven star pupil attitude and he's likely going to do the same with the UK. It's going to have to be a unanimous decision on an extension, so you never know, that could all go to merde. Scottish courts. The Scottish High Court have ruled that the government can't dismiss a case insisting Boris Johnson and his government abide by the Ben Act. So if any of his stupid letters with doodles on or secret ink writing saying wanker have somehow broken that, then he'll be in court in Scotland ASAP. What will happen then? Fuck knows. He'll probably get lynched by Pretty Patel before he does anything else. What next? Election? Referendum? Agendum? Everyone wear denim? Labour are going to back an amendment for a second referendum. So are the Lib Dems, who previously wanted that, then decided it wasn't enough, and now have decided it is again. I'm guessing the SNP will too, and the Greens have said they will. Will it pass? Possibly. Maybe not. If it does, it can take up to 22 weeks to get a referendum in process. Most polls on Leave, Remain or, or Remain versus Boris's deal are still split nearly 50-50, so the idea that this will heal the country is baffling. But hey, at least everyone will get to go outside to vote and ignore the news for 10 minutes before we all call each other traitors again. How long will this go on for? The rest of our lives. Why won't anyone stop it? Because we're in the bad place. All clued up? Really? Well, I'm not, and none of it will mean anything by Thursday anyway, and I'll have absorbed all that info for nothing, and as a result, probably forget a PIN number and the name of one of my friend's kids. I mean, that is, it is, it is terrifying, um, and you can absolutely see how... It, you know how that's kind of transferred to today's uh, world in that, that you know everyone has access to the internet everyone has access to sites that fact check and can tell you what the truth of these things are and you can access government documents that say something and yet the loud voices on the television uh, completely gaslight all of those things um and we'll just tell you that it's wrong and that the eu are being uncooperative or that you know uh whichever narrative uh, uh you know that they're, they're sort of spinning at the time um and and i guess you know it is does that cut through or because the nazis rose up out, out of a kind of recession uh period um uh, post world war one out of the recession period there, and, and we've had uh perhaps not to the same extent, but we had the 2008 crash and fascism seems to have kind of started rising again after that. What is it about those conditions that make people perhaps more susceptible or, you know, or, or it perhaps makes it easy for, for fascists kind of to control the narrative? It's it's a little bit like um, having a weakened immune system and then and then being, you know, more susceptible to, to a bad disease, really, um, in that, it takes quite a lot of resources across the whole of society to to maintain an idea of of what of what the truth is of what justice is of what human rights look like it it has to be constantly maintained and reinforced and when you have something like the years and years of austerity that we've now had after after the financial crash everybody's everybody's worn down there's no there's no resources really to to push out other messages everybody's just i think we're just we're, we're we're tired and we're fed up and we just want people to tell us something that makes us feel good about ourselves so these what what happens with these sort of um with with fascist ideology as a whole is it it's very good at combining various positive messages and 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 suckering people in and making them feel good about themselves if you're not the ones 
that are being demonized, you are being built up in, in a way that can feel quite, quite flattering. So it, it's this idea of any problems that you're facing, it, it's not your fault. There's all these other people who are being a drain on resources. Um, any bad, any things that your country has done in the past that you you may want to feel bad about, well, don't feel bad about that. It was the right thing to do. You know, feel more patriotic, feel like your country has a has a place in the world and has a purpose in the world. They're they're very positive messages and they're they're things that we're very, very susceptible to. And fighting that, it's it's difficult to to formulate a very positive message that appeals to individuals around you should give up some of your income to help other people. You should feel some guilt about things that have happened in the past it's it's a hard sell you know um and when when resources have been sucked out of everything of of charities out of so media outlets are feeling increased pressure to to sell people the things that they want to hear there's you know there's less investigative journalism there's i'm trying to think of another example now (laughs) But it's 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 everything it's everything's weaker. So the fascism, all the different elements of fascism are sort of mutually reinforcing. And we don't have an equivalent to counter that at the moment because just everything is 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 not working as well as it should do. Is it is it in the kind of fascist interest then? And I I don't know um you know what what necessarily the Nazis' endgame was apart from a kind of Aryan ideal i suppose but is it in there is it in the fascist interest to keep things rubbish you know to keep things hard so that it's easier to kind of persuade people to their ideology you know i mean to look at current times we've got the whole no deal context or we've got the whole you know we've just got to get this done it doesn't matter on the effects we've just got to you know but but there's no the actual uh positive you know change you know, the actual fixing of like support networks in society isn't really there. There's no, nothing that might actually benefit people. Does that so? Does that work within the ideology of actually, we'll tell people that things can be better, but to not actually fix it? I think that's quite a good way of looking at it. Yeah, and it's not it's not necessarily a a deliberate strategy, but it's a a lot of these things sound like a sound like a conspiracy theory if you if you start talking about them because if you talk about um you know, one element helping another element, people assume that that means sort of deliberate conclusion, like a deliberate strategy. Um, but I think I think what governments do to some extent is just sort of go with the path of least resistance. Um, so, yeah, definitely if you, if you deny groups' resources, then they are less able to, to resist what you're doing um if you make if you make it so that your organization your party your government is the only source of support for people it's their only you know real avenue um for complaint and support then yeah you are going to stay in power longer um so certainly what the nazis did was they every they tried to make it so that every group in the country, whether it was a, a political group, whether it was like a group for supporting veterans, even whether it was 
going out on a limb here, but, you know, some local bird watching group, they tried to make sure that all of them were in some way affiliated with the Nazi party or that they were in some way like a nationalist group. And they, yeah, they really did try to, to stamp out any other means of people getting together, talking to each other, organising around any kind of issue. They, they tried to bring it all over to Nazi control somehow. Um, and in ways that people may not have realised that, that that was happening. It's it's very interesting how in a lot of the, uh, especially in the kind of anti-EU uh, messages, a lot of them are saying, well, the, the Germans were Nazis and therefore Britain can't be because we fought against them and it's nothing to do with us. Um, is, is the idea that Britain, you know, can't be susceptible to kind of fascist ways uh, a bit silly? It's completely bananas. Yes. Um and it, it seems to arise out of this idea that there's something fundamental about the British national character, which means that we just, you know, we, we wouldn't be having with any of that sort of nonsense. You know, we have this strong democratic tradition and strong institutions. It's like, well, you know, Germany wasn't undemocratic at that point. There's there's a lot of stuff about how new their democracy was and all of this kind of stuff, but they'd we're the same species, you know, we're all just, we're humans and we react to things in the same way. There was no reason why fascism should arise in some European countries, but Britain's absolutely resistant to it. It's, it's just rubbish. Um, it's just that we, we didn't happen to have it at that time for whatever reason. Um, and the, the problem with fascism is, well, first of all, it's, it's an international phenomenon so each individual instance of fascism is nationalist but there's a lot of sharing of ideas between different countries there's a whole there's an ideology there that exists outside of national boundaries it's it's a whole international conversation happening um and it tends to so each specific instance will be tailored to that country so there are a lot of points of difference between Nazism as it existed in Germany and fascism as it, is, as it existed in Italy, for example. They look very, very different, especially in the 1930s in the way they developed. So Nazism was a lot more focused on anti-Semitism. It had much stronger pagan elements. And, you know, if you got a load of German Nazis and Italian fascists together in a room, they'd have had a lot of arguments because it wasn't a coherent, it wasn't the same thing in each case. And so there absolutely could be a version of fascist ideology tailored to the concerns of British people, you know, tailored to this political environment that, that could take hold and that we would be susceptible to. It's, I guess I'm going back to that disease idea again. It's, um, there's different strains of it that can affect different countries and nobody's completely immune to, to all of it. I mean, is it? Cause I was just going to say that we did have we had Mosley and the black shirts in, in the UK, didn't we? At the same time as the it, it, during the thirties. But I mean, was that kind of overshadowed by the fact that the Nazis were obviously the biggest baddies to use uh, very childish term? But you know, does the does the fact that the Nazis were, were the biggest threat then kind of overshadow, as you say, the other forms of fascism? And and actually, as you say, there are many many different types. I think if the going slightly out on a limb here, but I think if the Second World War hadn't happened then 
fascist those fascist groups within britain could have could have gone on to become a lot more powerful a lot more popular have more influence on politics but i think there's a there's a bit of a danger in assuming that because because britain had a role in defeating certain fascist regimes and because actual fascist parties in britain and i would count some particular recent political parties as, as as fascist as well and because they haven't really had much electoral success because they they tend to sort of fizzle out and you know collapse under their own personal and financial problems um that that means that we're okay that that fascism itself has been defeated in britain and it's it's not it's not about the regimes it's not it's not just about the groups it's about the actual ideas and we never really tackled those ideas we sort of got to the end of the second world war and went right okay that's it job done let's not examine any of that again you know we won and and if anything germany has tackled those ideas since hasn't it and it's got real strict rules uh, to stop it happening again and you know i mean i know there is still fascism in germany but but it's if anything i suppose them having the nazis there it, it's almost led them to being more defiant against it in the future yeah, well, this this is what happens when, when, when something's, when you face a sort of disastrous collapse like that, you know, defeat at the end of a war, you you have to self-examine, you have to come to terms with what happened. Um, whereas in Britain, we we haven't really had to do that all that much for anything about our history, and there's a lot of resistance to the idea of doing that, and. That's extremely problematic because that fascism didn't just beam down from space. It, it didn't just arise out of absolutely nothing. And that whole stew of right wing ideas that that was knocking around in the you know in the twenties and thirties, it it didn't go anywhere. It's it's still there, and it can still coalesce into you know a very very nasty, very powerful idea. I mean, I, I will, uh, while I fully agree it didn't beam down from space, I have seen Iron Sky and, you know, there is, it's slightly questionable. <laughs> um, <laughs> so let's let's try and, um, uh, I mean, I don't know if this will end on a positive note. It depends on your answer, I suppose. But um, with everything, you know, with, with the rise of uh, fascism and, and with some quite exceptional circumstances that the, uh, especially the UK is in right now, um You've got a knowledge of historical context for these sorts of things. Uh, does it mean that times right now are more hopeful or concerning in terms of uh, what's happened in history? Uh, is there anything that's happening right now where you think, well, you could see a positive way that this might play out? Yeah, I, I, we can't be complacent about what's happening, but it's encouraging to see so many people still willing to to talk about this and to talk about the history and just to hear the words you know fascism and, and nazism and everything being used so often even if they're not always being used in helpful ways it's there is a whole conversation happening here which is very encouraging um and also there's a lot more ways of getting the message out to a wider audience that we have access to now which activists in nazi germany did not have access to there wasn't yeah, there weren't any blogs. There wasn't podcasting. Um, you you couldn't hold. You couldn't reach that kind of audience. If you're not allowed to hold a rally and you're not allowed to hand out leaflets, then there weren't a lot of 
other options available to people whereas there there are now there are more voices within the media yeah it's it's very nice to know that this podcast might actually be useful uh, in some way <laughs> It's, a, it's always gratifying to go, oh, there might be a reason for doing this. Thank goodness for that. Um, well, thanks so much, Vicky. I think that's that's really fascinating. Um, and, and just the last question that I ask uh, everyone on this show um, is, uh, apart from yourself, um, who would you recommend that listeners follow or check out, read up on um, in terms of sort of good political history info and comparisons to now? Who, who do you go to? It It's not a name. It's not a specific person to follow. But I think if you want to see what historians really talk about amongst themselves and how complex some of these ideas are and just the arguments that we can have over terminology and how to define things, if you just find the Twitter historians tag on Twitter and just read some of what we're saying, maybe don't don't get involved, don't read too much into it, you know, don't feel that that's representative of what all historians think or anything but that's where a lot of these debates are happening and you can see just how how many different ideas there are how many different interpretations there are of of different historical events and we are generally talking about what is in the news that day and how we can understand it and and that kind of thing and there's a lot of very very interesting discussions happening there that are probably just never really going to make it to a wider audience so yeah if you want to know just how little historians understand the world but how hard we're trying i think that tag on twitter is a the twitter historians is a good way to to look into it thanks to vicky for that you can find her on twitter at violetta crisis and she has an occasional podcast called 1066 wasn't all that looking at how different types of evidence are used by history researchers Vicky is doing a talk in Manchester on November the 14th called Fascist Thought in Britain, Past and Present. And you can find details on that at the Manchester Skeptics website, gmss.uk, and I'll pop a link in the pod blurb too. I need more guests. Send them to me. Whose voice or realised brain spouting should I have on this show? What shitty injustice, neglected area of society or revolutionary new political idea shall I talk to someone about? Let me know, and you can do that via the contact page at partlypoliticalbroadcast.co.uk, the at Parpolbro Twitter, the Partly Political Broadcast Facebook group, or email me at partlypoliticalbroadcast at gmail.com. Or just the... But just the one email, please, not three that all contradict each other, and then make sure you sign them, otherwise how will I take it seriously? Mm -mm. And that's all for this week's Partly Political Broadcast podcast. Thank you for choosing to deplete your time batteries with this show once again. And if this is one of your chosen favourite life wasters, then please do recommend other people use up their valuable not-dead minutes to tune in. Maybe even give the show a review on whichever pod app you use, and possibly even donate a penny or two to the worthwhile cause that is me making this noise on a regular basis. And you can do that via the Patreon or the Kofi. Muchas gracias as always to Acast, my brother the last skeptic for providing the music noises, and to Cat Day for typing up all the linear liner notes. This will be back next week when an amendment for a second referendum is voted through, but due to hackers, all three options on the ballot just say, stop, stop, it's already dead, and yet all the parties still campaign against each other. Bye. 
This week's show was brought to you by Farage's I Can't Believe It's Not Brexit, a small, very expensive card box with exclusive shiny pictures and promises on the outside. But what lies inside? No one knows. I mean, it's nothing, but who actually knows till you look inside? No one, there's nothing, there's nothing in there, but no one. And now you're poor and you just have a shitty box, but if you don't, you'll be a prisoner of the no-box elite, and who wants that? Farage's I Can't Believe It's Not Brexit coming to stores near you at the end of the month. Or maybe January. Or maybe spring. Or maybe 2015. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.